Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm Shane Rosenthal. On the last program, I opened up with a discussion of some of the little details that appraisers look for when trying to determine the authenticity of a work of art. And as we discovered, one of the ways to tell a true Monet from a forgery is by a detailed analysis of both the canvas and the paint. So if, for example, it's discovered that the pigments used in the portrait are in fact correct for the period, this can give more confidence concerning the authenticity of a painting. Because we couldn't establish the provenance of the painting and also because the scholars weren't able to agree in the attribution of the work, curators in this museum decided to do some scientific test to see if the painting was authentic or a fake. I did non-destructive analysis looking for elemental information. What you would expect to see in a 15th century painting are these major peaks right here. And what I noticed throughout this painting was the prevalence of zinc and chromium. Zinc white did not come into use until the 19th century. Chromium-based pigments did not come into use until the 19th century. So the prevalence of those two pigments strongly suggests that it was not created until the mid-19th century through 1936. As I mentioned on last week's episode, this work is analogous to the approach that some take when evaluating the authenticity of the New Testament Gospels. Whereas some simply trust these texts because of their own family upbringing, or due to some kind of feeling or religious experience they may have had, others have taken the time to examine the Gospels carefully, looking for a variety of clues that could help us to determine whether or not they really could be authentic first-century accounts of the life of Jesus, as opposed to some kind of ancient myth, legend, or historical fiction. One such scholar is Dr. Lydia McGrew, who has spent a great deal of time investigating all the little details in the gospel narratives that are often overlooked. 
So what can these details tell us about the geography, customs, and even botany of first century Palestine? And are they right for the period? On last week's program, we discussed her latest book, Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. And on this episode, I'll be airing part two of that conversation. Lydia, you also write about Luke's specificity when it comes to describing and naming certain kinds of trees. Talk about that. Well, there's a saying that Jesus has about a tree, and it's sometimes mentioned as a mulberry tree, and that occurs in Luke. Luke 17. There, even though it's translated mulberry, the word is actually sycamine. And then when you move forward and you come to the incident with Zacchaeus. Luke 19. Right. Um, Luke says that he climbed a sycamore tree. And you wouldn't necessarily guess from the English translations that these sound so similar in the Greek, but Luke carefully reports them separately. And we also find sycamore trees in Jericho, which is where the Zacchaeus episode takes place. So Luke is actually interested in precision. He doesn't just say that he climbed a tree. Right. He says that he climbed a sycamore tree. So I think we get a lot of these little things that refute the idea that the gospel authors are not interested in precision, which you'll hear is a kind of a lazy generalization at times. So he describes a sycamore tree in contrast to a sycamine tree. And is a sycamine also in the Palestinian area? Oh, yeah. But it's just that I gather sycamores are especially common or were especially common in Jericho. Interesting. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Now, in Mark's account of the feeding of the 5000, Mark 639, the narrator gives an interesting and unnecessary detail by mentioning the fact that the grass was green. Why do you think that that's significant? It fits really well with the time period that's mentioned in John. Only Mark uses that term green, but then John says that the feast of Passover was near at hand. And Peter Williams went and did a little more digging into like rainfall patterns and so forth. The grass is not green all the time in the Galilee region there. And after the winter rains at Passover time there in the early spring, That is really a very plausible time when the grass would be green. So that fits together really well. And it shows that we should take these things literally rather than symbolically in the first instance. You know, you have a New Testament scholar. The first thing they're going to say is, wow, look at this Passover symbolism in John. Is is the feeding of the 5,000 maybe connected somehow to a Eucharistic meal, blah, 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 blah. They're going all theological and symbolical. And it's like... No, I mean, he said it because it was the Passover, you know, and and Mark. So I've heard this theory that he made up the green grass because Jesus saw the people. They were a sheep without a shepherd. Aha. Psalm 23. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Cool, cool, cool. And they're not taking seriously the literal meaning. And I think the coincidence there forces us to take the literal meaning seriously. Now, during that same event, according to John 6, 5, Jesus says, where are we to buy the bread so the people may eat? And you say that this points to another undesigned coincidence. How so? Well, Jesus says that, according to John, speaking to Philip. It would be probability one out of 12 if, you know, Jesus just picked somebody who happened to be standing there. Or if John's making it up, if he just picked somebody at random to make up this dialogue. But it would be a lot more satisfactory if we knew that there was some reason for Jesus to speak to Philip. 
Well, we're not going to find that out from any one gospel. So elsewhere in John, he mentions that Philip and also Peter and Andrew were from the region of Bethsaida. That still doesn't tell us anything about why Jesus spoke to Philip. And this, this often happens in probability that background evidence will have no relevance until you add some fact and it's sort of like a catalyst in chemistry and boom, suddenly that background evidence comes to be relevant when you put it all together. So the catalyst here would be over in Luke where it mentions that the feeding of the 5,000 took place in the region near the town of Bethsaida. And so now we put these all together. Jesus is, in fact, teasing his disciples a little bit um, by saying, hey, you know, these people need food. Where, where are we going to buy the food? You know, they're not really going to buy the food for all those people. But he turns to Philip and it makes sense because Philip was from there. So it would be like saying, Philip, where around here can we buy bread? And it, it fits with that location, which you only find in Luke. Yeah. So in Matthew 14, 1, we're told that Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and said to his servants, quote, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. So, Lydia, how could Matthew have known what Herod said to his servants? Is this like an example of uh, the omniscient narrator's voice who <laughs> just sort of knows everything? Uh, you know, how would that be possible that a writer of the gospel could know what Herod was saying to his servants? Right. It might seem up front that this is a, a great example of somebody just adding something. Um that is not what's going on here. We find actually that in Luke, in a completely different context, in Luke 8, he's just listing some women who contributed financially to Jesus' ministry and who were his disciples. And he he lists Mary Magdalene, for example, and Susanna. And he then lists Joanna, the wife of Husa, who was Herod's steward or household manager, however you translate that. And her husband, I think, would have had to be on board with that in that culture and not objecting to her giving you know, money and supporting Jesus. So that fits really well, because if he's coming home, who's is coming home and saying, wow, you know, the boss was really upset today about Jesus and said he thinks he's John the Baptist risen from the dead, then that's how that could get back to the Christian community. It fits beautifully, but it's such an indirect confirmation as well that it's clearly not something that either Matthew or Luke is doing deliberately to try to fit together. Yeah, I actually did a study of the word used to describe Kuz's role as Herod's steward. There's actually a better word for a household manager. The word that's used here is epitropos. And when I looked at that word in Josephus, he was describing governors and procurators, those who ran the affairs of state. So if you see it that way, Cusa is a notable figure, which would make Joanna also a person of nobility, which is definitely understated. But there's an interesting text, and I would love to get your take on this. John 4 describes the scene where Jesus heals the son of a royal official. And that's the word we find in John 4.46. At Capernaum, there was an official, but in Greek, that's basilikos. Basil is a, a word for king. A basilikos is an adjective that just could mean royal, but it's a, it's a royal official. And it says his son was ill. But then when you follow that narrative, verse 53 says that, you know, after Jesus healed that son from a great distance, which itself was remarkable, we're told that he and his entire household believed. So this Herodian official who was royal, a man of nobility, 
seems like there's an overlap here between Joanna's husband, who is also a person of nobility. If it's not Kuza, you have another opportunity to say, here is a person who would be somehow, you know, in frequent conversation with Herod. Uh, but there is another person mentioned in Acts 13, and that is among the leaders of the church in Antioch, Luke mentions Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And that word lifelong friend is actually another one of these royal dignitary offices. It's like somebody who's raised with the king, who's in that sort of circle of nobility. But he ends up becoming a strong believer. So you have a couple of different candidates for who could have been those who would have heard the report, you know, what what Herod was saying to his servants. Right. And as far as what Herod was saying, especially because he might have said it to other people, not just to his servants, mm-hmm. um, and perhaps also later in Luke where um, Herod has been eager to see Jesus and hopes that he'll perform a miracle. Um, and so, you know, what Herod was thinking and so forth, mm-hmm. we have multiple people in contact with Herod. So just a lot of cool connections there. Yeah, yeah. But I guess for me, the the John 4 passage where it says that one of these royal officials that he and his whole household believed, like if that is Cusa. That would explain why Joanna becomes a follower at a very early period, giving out of her wealth. I mean, I've heard this argument that it's it's implausible that someone like Joanna would leave her family to be traveling with Jesus. But this would be one plausible way to connect how that could be. Well, right. And I would emphasize, too, that walks and travel distances that we ourselves would just consider daunting. You know, I would never be walking back and forth from Kalamazoo to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, We're not as daunting, especially when people are going to Jerusalem repeatedly for the feasts. So Joanna doesn't have to be, none of these women, if they were married, have to be leaving their husbands for the entirety of Jesus' three-year ministry or anything like that. They can be going back and forth meeting Jesus and saying, okay, you know, I'll meet you guys later at Passover or see you then type right. thing. They go back and so forth. So there's a lot, a lot of fluidity. We should never think of groups as being sort of nailed together. Right. Now, all three of the synoptic gospels mention the story of blind Bartimaeus, but talk for a moment about the, uh, the extra detail that Mark gives about that scene. So Mark says, and he's the only one who names him, gives him, gives right. his name. Um, he says that when he got up to go to Jesus after they had tried to say, ah, you know, don't bother him. It says he he cast aside his cloak when he got up to go to Jesus. And so that's just one of these little vivid things that we find that when you listen to someone telling a memoir that he really remembers, he'll, he'll suddenly have a little vivid thing that'll pop out. And I remembered how it looked, you know, and he'll say that. And they, they pop out sort of unexpectedly. And this is part of this texture of testimony. So if Mark's gospel is, you know, Mark being Peter's translator, it's Peter's memory. So maybe Peter was closer to the scene and he recalled the specific information, including the man's name, whereas other gospels are doing a little bit more summary work, so they don't mention the man's name. They don't have that sort of detail. That could help explain some of the differences between the gospels themselves. Oh, absolutely. And a phrase that I cannot remember if I actually put it in the book is what I call the randomness of saliency. So saliency is something standing out to you or coming back to you Mm -hmm. as part of a a memory. I talk there about a... um, an interview that I watch with Jimmy Fortune, who's a country western singer, and he's telling about his first interview for the group he came to sing with and, and how the guy picked him up 
at the airport. And he said he was driving the Lincoln Continental. Like the Lincoln Continental has nothing to do with anything. Right. He just it, it was the randomness of saliency. The Lincoln Continental is what happened to come back to his mind. And we would also recognize it as part of that texture of testimony. Yeah, it's kind of like my dad kept referring to Western and Wilshire. And when he went in, into the bar, you know, he remembered his back was to Western. He could kind of give me the geography in ways that were vivid. That's one of the reasons why I decided to do an Internet search for that intersection. So it was paying attention to the random unnecessary detail that ended up convincing me that he was telling the truth. Yep. And that happens. And it allows us then in other cases like here, we don't have any specific confirmation that Bartimaeus threw off his cloak when he went, but it allows us to recognize it as being a realistic way of narrating. After I wrote the book, I happened to be reading an article by C.H. Dodd, very famous mm-hmm. uh, New Testament scholar, and he was talking about the resurrection narratives uh, in the Gospels, and he literally characterized them as being more embellished and less factual when they contained unnecessary details. Hmm. He had it. He had it exactly backwards, and he's explicit about it in the article that this is a sign of what he called the storyteller's art, and it. it you wanted to ask him, you know, haven't you ever listened to your dad tell you any stories? <laughs> because that's not what it sounds like at all. It's It sounds like the memoirist's non-artful and instead, you know, just truthful way of telling the story. Yeah. I mean, along those lines, you actually talk about apparent contradictions between the gospel writers. And you say, if there's one thing that apparent contradictions between the accounts show— it's that the literary theories where one person is pouring over another person's story and making all of his changes desperately are probably false. If he were doing that, he could have easily avoided any apparent contradictions. I'm with you. I, I think the apparent contradictions are wonderful because they show that this wasn't something that was fabricated. There's no collusion going on. And I'd like to talk to you about the contradiction, the apparent contradiction related to Bartimaeus, because in Mark's gospel, Bartimaeus was healed by Jesus as Jesus was leaving Jericho. But according to Luke 18.35, this occurred as Jesus was drawing near to the city. So how do you think we should deal with this contradiction and other ones like it? Well, I think our first approach needs to be, as, as it was yours with your father, to you know see whether there are plausible ways that both could be true yeah. and not to say, oh, well, so then they're making it up. So suppose one does not hold to inerrancy, for example. If there is a mistake here, it actually, in many of these cases, it would fit beautifully with the kind of mistake that occasionally will be made even by very reliable, truthful witnesses. Um, Luke contains some of that information. You could literally have had one of the witnesses make a slip of the tongue when telling it to Luke. I do this sometimes. You know, I'll say leaving when I mean arriving, you yeah. know, and, and you, if you don't catch it, you know, then it makes its way in. So just something really trivial like that. But also it could be that both are true. And I do not turn my nose up at the harmonization in this case, that there was an old 
ruins of Jericho, and then that there was the Jericho where people were actually living at the time of Jesus, and that he was, you know, going away from the one and coming into the other. That That's a possibility, and the fact that we find so much confirmed uh, gives us all the more rational reason to take something like that seriously. I, I think one of the, the explanations that I think works for a lot of these kinds of apparent contradictions has to do with the way that you know, one narrator may be talking about the specific details of the case, whereas the other sort of compresses the narrative and is giving you the gist, which makes it seem like it's a contradiction, but it's not necessary. It doesn't have to be a contradiction. I use the term achronological narration for a compression that is not actually intended to give an impression contrary to fact. I think sometimes it is relevant. And what I mean by achronological narration is where I might say, I did this and then I did that. And maybe a person walks away with the impression that I did the second thing immediately after mm-hmm. the first thing. And I was just listing two things that I happened to do on the same day, right. for example. And so this is when the author is not intending to uh, indicate an order or not intending to indicate a highly specific time period uh, by what he says, and we might accidentally get a false impression. Now, that is a matter of judgment. That is a judgment call. We have to try to figure that out. But I think that does apply in Luke 24, for example, at the uh, resurrection narrative in Hmm, Luke 24. Yeah, I agree with that, too. Um, Some scholars say in Luke 24, Luke puts all these events on Easter Day, even though they don't really happen on Easter Day. That really would be changing the fact. Yeah. I mean, if Luke knew that it took six weeks and he said, hey, in my version of the story, I'm going to make it all happen in one day, that would be inaccurate. But if Luke is merely being nonspecific, which I think we find from verse 44 on, and you just get all of these sort of and, and, and things Um then it's a chronological narration. And in fact, I think that may be why in Acts 1, he emphasizes that Jesus was on earth for 40 days. Yeah, because so if you just read the end of uh, you know Luke chapter 24, you would have thought he was, you know, it just may have been a few days or a week or so. But then when you read the beginning of Acts, it does look like the ending of Luke 24 had been compressed. Right, right. And so I think Luke is actually being conscientious about that. He was narrating achronologically at the end of Luke because he's saying, you know, I want to be sure that if Theophilus accidentally got the wrong impression that he wasn't around for very long from the end of my first book that I sent to him, I want to clear that up here and um, make that as clear as possible. Now, according to uh, Luke 23.3, Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he responds by essentially saying, it is as you say. But oddly, Pilate then says to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Why would Pilate conclude that Jesus was not guilty, even though he basically admitted that he was, in fact, the king of the Jews? I mean, isn't that insurrection? It would be the kind of thing that Pilate would definitely need to take seriously. Um, But what we find in John is that as the dialogue continues, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world and emphasizes that. So I believe Pilate concluded that he was more or less a harmless religious crank and that that's why he still had some Roman sense of justice. Um, You know, he might have been a, a corrupt and cynical person, but he didn't exactly want to condemn an innocent man to be crucified. So he tries to release Jesus and then eventually gives in and orders that he be crucified. But it's because he had concluded that this was not what we might call a credible threat to lead an insurrection. So now you pointed out in your first book that Jesus' words to Pilate in John 1836 
if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, uh, sort of stand in tension with the things recorded earlier in that same chapter, since Peter did end up fighting at the time that Jesus was arrested and in the process cut off the ear of uh, the servant of the high priest, Malchus. So how do you end up resolving that tension? Well, in Luke, we find, in addition to that, that Jesus healed the ear. And he even rebuked Peter. He said, put up your sword. So Jesus knew when he said that to Pilate, that if anyone were to give a further account of what happened in the garden, and if that if someone were to delve into this further, then it could be pointed out that Jesus himself had rebuked that use of the sword. And if they tried to produce the servant, there he'd be with both ears. So what is the story about cutting off an ear, um, which w- would only bring things out that would be to Jesus' own credit. So since his point is that he is not, in fact, leading an earthly violent insurrection, the full tale of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane could only serve to support what his claim is about the nature of his kingdom. Okay, now, so in Mark 15, 43, there's a passing comment to the effect that Joseph of Arimathea took courage when he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. What do you make of this unexplained comment? Right, because, you know, there's no reason why Pilate should have been hostile to Joseph. So where's the where's the need for courage, particularly then? Pilate doesn't even seem to have demurred. He was like, fine, here, have the body. Um, but we find in John, it mentions that previously Joseph of Arimathea had been a secret follower of Jesus for fear of the Jewish leaders. So the idea is then that at this point, he decided to stand up and be more courageous and bolder and come out publicly in support of Jesus. So it wasn't in relation to Pilate that he needed to take courage, but rather in relation to what you might call his peers within the Sanhedrin that he needed to take courage. And we we learned that when we read the Gospel of John. Yeah. So what I'd like to do now is to spend some time walking through some of the unnecessary details that we find exclusively in John's Gospel. Uh, You have a section in your new book where you do this. So first of all, what do you think is significant about the six stone vessels that John describes in chapter two during his narration of the miracle at the wedding of Cana? So he says that they contained, uh, it's usually translated between 20 and 30 gallons. He seems to be trying to estimate how big they were. And we find this a lot in John. He likes numbers. He even likes specific numbers. And so once again, this just really flies in the face of this idea of John as being sort of loosey-goosey and uh, certainly not making stuff up. To the contrary, this shows a person with actually a rather precise memory and an interest in precision. I recently read a book by uh, James Charlesworth. And one of the things that he was pointing out was we actually have archaeological evidence that there were actually these Jewish purification vessels, and they're right here in this first century period that ends with the Jewish war. You stop seeing them after that. So we actually have them, and we have some of them in Cana. So Yeah, they were being manufactured. Yeah. Yeah. What John mentions actually is something that we have confirmed, and they were about that size. It's so cool. Yeah, I think they found like a, I don't know if it was a factory, but a place in those hills right near there where they were being made. Just another one of those touch points that helps us to see that whatever John is doing, he's not sort of making things up in order to craft historical fiction. He's actually just describing what happened. (laughs) Right. It's just that feeling of they're just being steeped in the culture so that after you see a lot of these, you start to realize 
that by far the simplest explanation is that they just were telling the truth, writing these stories as people who actually were steeped in the culture. This kind of artlessly moving without any effort through the culture of the time and mentioning all these hard little things that you would not be able to get right by researching. There's no Google. There are no reference works. It's not like you could just go to the library and look it up and so forth uh, and then go and kind of, hey, I'm going to fold that in because that'll be cool. That, that'll make it look real. That just wasn't done and it wouldn't have been able to be done at the time. So that's why these things are significant because in the end you realize that it's very ad hoc to try to consider them to be fictionalized with all this added as sort of uh, realistic spice dropped into it as a hoax. Yeah, whether you're talking about city names, the ratio of the names of people, architectural details, botanical information, again and again and again, the writers of the Gospels and of all the New Testament documents are right for the period. And when you look at the available evidence, when you check their story with available facts, that can give you more trust. In fact, I had a friend who did this. He was a Muslim, and he was troubled by the geography in the Quran. Like, you know, they're going from place A to place B, and it took half a day. But he was doing the math. It's like, even with a car, that would be difficult. But when he became a Christian, part of the reason he became a Christian was because he, he actually took you know a map and was doing the measuring of the distances. He tells the story where he's like, when going from place A to place B— Yes, in fact, when you look on a map, that city is close to the city. And as you point out throughout your book, you know, when you go from Cana to Capernaum, you're going down to Capernaum. And the ups and downs of the Bible are all accurate, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes the skeptic will raise something. They'll say, oh, Jesus is going in the wrong direction in Mark to get to the location that it says he's trying to get to. But then when you look at a map that actually has, you know, uh, elevations on it as well, the shape of the land, you see that he had to go, you know, around a mountain. Mm. And so it actually makes sense because you, you wouldn't go straight across the top of the mountain. Right. So things like that that end up, you know, end up fitting in. All right. So um, in John 5, 2, we're told that there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, though the entire city was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, a pool with five porticos was later discovered by archaeologists right in the area that John said it was. Talk about that. So it's hard to picture something with five colonnades. You'd think to yourself, is this a pentagon or what? Um, you would normally think that a pool would have four sides, not five. So there was a certain amount of skepticism. Now, an area began to be uncovered in the 19th century, but then it wasn't completed. There was more excavation that went on in the 20th century, finding one that really fit surprisingly well because it has an upper pool and a lower pool. It's kind of two uh, basins, as they're sometimes called, with what you might think of as a spillway between them. And it fits really well with what John describes. And the, the amusing thing is that there was one liberal scholar who kind of stuck his neck out and said that the five porticos referred to the five books of Moses right. and that John just put it in there for a symbolic reason to symbolize that Jesus was greater than Moses. And then, of course, we find out that it just really did have five 
porticos and John's just saying it because it's true. So that should serve as a cautionary tale about that kind of over interpreting instead of taking it to be literal. Yeah. I'm persuaded by Daniel Wallace's argument that there's something here that's fascinating about the present tense nature of the language. There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. It's to me sort of like saying there is in New York a place called the World Trade Center with two twin towers. You know, if you if you came across that in a book, you would assume it was written before 2001. This is one of those texts that pushes me toward an earlier date, at least one that was pre-70, uh, because that language here seems to imply that, A, Jerusalem is still there and the Sheep Gate of the Temple is still there and the pool with the five porticos is still there because the language is present tense. What do you think? It is present tense. Yeah. And I would agree with you that that um, is evidence in favor of that. I just tend to think that the uh, patristic evidence of its being written in the, the older age of the apostle kind of outweighs that on the other side. At a minimum, this is being written by a person for whom the geography of Jerusalem is extraordinarily vivid and who has a pre-70 memory that is vivid and specific and precise and who knew that old city very well. So either way, you know, he's still he's thinking of it. He's thinking of it in his mind. He can almost see it in his mind's eye. Yeah. So whatever the case, he has accurate information about the way Jerusalem was. And you and I can differ about the ultimate implications of that present tense language. But whoever this guy is, he wasn't making stuff up. And and even if it is, you know, suppose it were 65, you know, this is 30 years later. Right. Um, so, you know, I think he's got um, one of those auditory memories that tends to really things get really burned in your mind in an auditory way. Um, and I know what that's like a little bit because I have a pretty vivid auditory memory and I can remember things people said to me years ago and what it sounded like. And I think that's somewhat what he was like. Well, I mean, that's the way memory works. Sometimes you, you things are just etched in your memory in a way that it sticks with you. Like my dad's memory of Western and Wilshire. It's just something that when I checked those facts, I was able to corroborate them. Other times, you know, I'll try and think of something that took place 30 years ago and I'm foggy, but my wife is very clear about it. And then it'll slowly come back to me. So uh, in this case, when we look at what John has written, we corroborate his words with actual archaeology. In this case, it turns out there really was a, a five-roof portico there in on the eastern side of the temple. Exactly. It all presents a very coherent, very believable picture. Now, regarding the events of John 7, which take place during the Feast of Tabernacles, you say that John writes like someone recording events, not like a literary craftsman who invents to further his own themes. Why do you say that? That passage in John 7 is so cool that it's actually, I call it a threefer. It's got three different ways in which it confirms its own historicity. So the one I'm talking about in the immediate context of that quotation you just gave from the book concerns the pouring of water during the Feast of Tabernacles. So Jesus stands up and says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And we know from Talmudic sources that there was a ceremony at that time where they would take water from a spring of living water and they would pour it over the uh, altar in the temple. I think I read in the in the Mishnah, one of the rabbis saying, "Who, if you've never seen the great water ritual on the last day of the great Feast of Tabernacles, you've never seen a great ceremony in your life. 
Yeah, you never seen joy, I believe is the phrase. You never saw joy in his day. So it was this very, very exciting ceremony. There's a little ambiguity in the sources as to whether they did it more than once during the feast or only at the end. But Jesus seems to be alluding to this when he mentions living water. But then, as I say in the quote, it's not belabored in any way. This is one of those cases where, yes, John's Gentile hearers or readers they might not have recognized it. They might not have known that Jesus was making this allusion. And John doesn't pause to explain it. Instead, John wants to be sure that it's just told right. and that this is what happened. He's saying it because it's true. It's got that artlessness. So not like someone who's, who's inventing. So that's, that's an excellent confirmation there. One of the things that I'm fascinated by in you know, John's gospel as a whole is that there's all kinds of references to the temple ceremonies and rituals. Jesus is constantly going back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, Feast of Passover. And one of the festivals that's recorded in John's gospel, I forget which one, but John places him in the treasury of the temple when he says, I am the light of the world. And it turns out when you look at Josephus and other sources, that area there by the treasury is where they had these huge candelabras that were you know, filled with oil and they illumined the temple during this great festival. And it says, there wasn't a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up by those great candles. And John doesn't highlight this, but that's where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Just like here in John 7, this is where he says, I am the living water. So his statements fit with the specific liturgy there at the temple. And John doesn't really call attention to it. He just kind of assumes that many of his Jewish readers would get it. Well, and he assumes that it's important to say, because Jesus said it, mm-hmm. you know, whether his, whether his readers get it or not. Richard Balcom highlights the fact that John is so specific about where Jesus is. He doesn't yeah. just say he was in Jerusalem and he said this. No, it's, you know, he was in Jerusalem at Solomon's portico. Right. He was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, etc. So you realize sometimes how exaggerated the skepticism is that's directed at the Gospels and John in particular. That's where we probably should make a distinction between being skeptical and skepticism. It's okay to be skeptical. I mean, the New Testament encourages us, I think, to not believe every spirit, but to test the spirits. There's a little bit of uh, doubt and skepticism baked into that, I think. You should test to see whether these things are so. But when you are so skeptical that you never arrive anywhere, that's where we get into trouble, isn't it? I think so. And I also think that uh, both skepticism and belief often go by fads or styles Mm. uh, among those that you are with. And so if they're inclined to just accept something without question, then people often are inclined to accept it without question. But if they're inclined to, you know, throw every possible ad hoc doubt that they can dream up, then that peer group will tend to do so as well. And, And we do want to break free of that. So basically, it's easy and natural to believe in things that everyone else all around you already believes. And it's actually rather difficult to believe in things that everyone is suspicious about. Yes. And I think especially when it comes to a group that a person regards as his peer group, Hmm. the insider outsider distinction comes into play that someone who doesn't believe what your peer group within your own discipline already believes is automatically considered an outsider and therefore automatically disregarded as uninformed or something of that kind, which is a great way to make sure that your discipline can never be corrected. Do you think that's sort of what happens in the world of scholarship, that there are these fads in the academy. <laughs> and then some some ideas are just sort of 
ruled out of court. And then one of the fears of those in the academy is being kicked out of the academy and looking foolish. So that's what controls the conversation. Yeah, it happens all too often. And so something that's really just a new fad is characterized as a new discovery. I've even seen it be analogized to discovering a new planet or a new scientific law in an area like New Testament or education or even philosophy. And in these cases, the the actual examples aren't like discovering a new planet at all. It's not that objective. It's just the moving on of the social climate to something else that is highly approved. Yeah, I'm reminded of um, Richard Bauckham's latest edition of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. He has a concluding chapter where he just says, this whole process of form criticism, you know, which was popular with people like Rudolf Bultmann and others, he says it's a dead end. But a lot of times the scholars, as they're thinking through the New Testament, they're in this realm of the ideas and the theories. You know, these are fairy tales like Hansel and Gretel, and they evolved over time. That's something you're imposing on the text, isn't it? Yeah, I would definitely say so. And Balcom has helped us to consider a better more accurate paradigm. And what I'd love to see is for scholars to take the next step and apply that same kind of healthy, legitimate skepticism to certain kinds of redaction criticism, Mm. as well as form criticism, which is to advocate the idea that the authors are changing things in non-factual ways. Do you think that's becoming more popular in evangelical circles, this idea of, you know, the narrator sort of adds stuff, puts stuff in Jesus' mouth, that kind of thing? And that any kind of little change or difference between especially the synoptic gospels is a result not of extra or different factual information, but a result of a redactive change. So, for example, the variations between Luke's and Matthew's stories of the centurion are regarded as either Luke is adding stuff that he's just making up, or else Matthew is changing the facts deliberately in a way that he knows is not true either way. And nobody's really taking seriously the idea that Matthew and Luke uh, had separate, partially independent at least, factual sources about what happened. That's like so far out of their scope that it's not being considered. So I do think it's becoming more popular in evangelical circles, that redactive notion, because it's regarded as a settled fact of scholarship. Dale Allison, in his most recent book on the resurrection, said with a kind of, you can almost hear the incredulity in the scholar's voice. This would indicate, if you took a more conservative view, this would mean that the successes of redaction criticism were a, I think he uses the word mirage, And I'm reading it and I'm saying, yep, that's right. They were a mirage. And you can't make that ridiculous just by speaking as if it is ridiculous. And so that's an instance of that kind of dismissive laugh. Are you really saying, you know, and then people don't feel that they can stand up to that. Yeah. And that's actually a very persuasive thing. I mean, I just think many people underestimate how human beings are really herd animals in a lot of ways. We, we want to be with the consensus, with the popular view. And it's, it's hard to be the odd man out swimming upstream, the person who is ridiculed. But when you think about it, the person who laughs an idea out of court will not be looking closely at the evidence. And the person who is shamed for suggesting something, if he wants to stay in the court, he can't bring that up again. You know, these things shouldn't persuade us, but basically it's peer pressure, right? 
Yes, it definitely is. And I think what people are doing a lot is they're saying they're driven by the argument, but what they're really doing is they're using another thing as a proxy for the argument. Hmm. So I, I call this proxy thinking. You know, the consensus, including both liberals and conservatives, agree on this. So the arguments must be strong. Right. And so then it'll be said, no, no, I'm concerned about the arguments, but actually what you're doing is you're using this other thing as a proxy for the argument, leading you to assume the argument must be strong. But at some point, if we go back into the history of Western civilization before it was Christianized, you know, you say most of the people in England <laughs> were Druids and they had other strange pagan views, but at some point, they were convinced against their plausibility structure, against the consensus view, and something had to convince them. I think we just need to go back and put ourselves in their shoes. Like, what did convince an entire generation, country after country after country, to be persuaded that a Jewish rabbi who was, you know, crucified in a, in a shameful way was actually the Lord of heaven and earth? Yes. And so in that sense, Christianity has always been an evidential religion. Right. And I, I definitely believe that it has been evidence against plausibility structures. So we just need to keep on carrying that out in all areas of our lives. And also to recognize that Jesus said we would be ridiculed. Jesus said people would persecute you sometimes for presenting these things. And thank God that people did go to the Picts and the Gauls and the Celts and the Druids with this message and that they were willing to do it even in the process of being ridiculed and persecuted and tortured. Otherwise, we today wouldn't be Christian. That's correct. And those who follow us won't be Christians unless we keep on doing that. Right. In John 14, 22, we're told that Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, how will you manifest yourself? What do you make of this one? Well, you know, we were earlier talking about um, extra names and Judas was just, you know, it was way up there. One of the one of the top male names in the place and at the time. So Probably because of the Maccabean revolt where you had a famous Judah Maccabee and that's why people named their kids Judas. Exactly. And so it's entirely probable that Jesus could have had more than one disciple who was known as Judas, but that you wouldn't want to confuse the one who wasn't Iscariot with the one who was Iscariot because Judas Iscariot betrayed him. But it's very hard to imagine the evangelist making that up. Like if he's if he's just making up this bit of dialogue, you know, give it to a different named disciple. Don't give it to this person with this super awkward, you know, Judas, but not Iscariot. Especially if that second Judas hasn't even been introduced in the gospel yet. Right. It's like, oh, I better make this clear. That just has a very realistic sound to it. You know, similar to this in John nineteen twenty five, there are basically three Marys mentioned in the same verse. Uh, there's Jesus' mother, there's Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then there's Mary Magdalene. That's not the sort of thing that people do when they're writing fictional tales, uh, because it's just really confusing. <laughs> but it is yes. the kind of thing you, you do find in real history, isn't it? Right. I mean, you know, if if it's just a really, really popular name at the time, then you could end up having three women, you know, right next to one another who all, who all have the same name. And so then you've got to give them some little extra epithet, like the mother of Jesus or of Clopas or of Magdala. Yeah. There's another Mary too in John's gospel, Mary, the sister of Martha. Uh, but that's not something you find in the Gnostic gospels. I can't recall a single place in the Gnostic gospels where you have anything like this, like Judas, not Iscariot, or trying to distinguish which Mary you're talking about. 
No, the Gnostics, of course, they like Mary Magdalene. They, you know, put her in there, but they just got her name straight out of the canonical Gospels. Yeah, but they're not distinguishing her from other Marys. Right. Uh, the, mostly That's what correct. they're doing is they're focusing on esoteric teaching, and they aren't. there aren't a whole lot of these unnecessary details or historical facts or architectural details or botanical information that you can actually weigh to see w- whether or not this is a first century Palestinian text. Right. There's none of that. And that's where there's a real tin ear that skeptics have when they say, well, maybe he was just doing that to make it look, you know, it's a kind of adding that extra layer of deception on there that is not required by the evidence and is not typical for the time either. You say, go read some of the fiction of the time and then come back and read this. Once again, it's got that texture of testimony. All right. Last question. What is a quaternion, and how does this information help us to gain more confidence related to John's historical reliability? A quaternion was a guard of four soldiers, and it was a common size for a guard within the Roman army. We find this from reading, you know, obscure texts about the Roman military setup, um, several different ones. And all that John says is when they are dividing Jesus' garments They could do that. That's also confirmed, you know, that the executioners could get the clothes that were on the prisoner who was going to die. It says they divided it into four parts for each soldier. And then we get that they cast dice for his overgarment because they didn't want to tear it up. So it's just this very casual reference to the fact that there were four soldiers in charge of Jesus' crucifixion. And that fits with our knowledge that four soldiers made a guard. It's a nice little fit, but John gives it again in this casual, artless, truthful fashion. Well, folks, you've been hearing from Dr. Lydia McGrew, author of Testimonies to the Truth, why you can trust the Gospels, and you can find more information about this topic by checking out the show notes section of this episode. Please remember that The Humble Skeptic is a listener-supported podcast and that I could really use your help. So if you are benefiting from this program, consider becoming a paid subscriber through Substack or by throwing a few coins in the tip jar. As a way of saying thanks for any subscription or gift, I'll send you a link to download a 20-page PDF document that I've written titled, What is Faith?, which walks through many of the issues I've been discussing on recent episodes. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. 